The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. Today was a gorgeous day. You walk around campus. Of course, we're in the Pacific Northwest. It's 55 degrees, and it, I just happen to notice that there's probably people here at the beginning of, the, of March, once the sun comes out, that are probably wearing, a, I don't know, a little less clothing than maybe they should be uh, at, this, at this time of the year. It's days like this where sometimes I, I, I feel like, well, you know, do I need to again send my colleague Chris Sherman the reminder that, look, you can't wear deep V tank tops to work, you know, that have the chest hair. And bro, if you're going to wear those short shorts, they need to go beyond your fingertips, you know. Chris gets pretty fired up about the fact that the sun comes out. So as we're talking about, you know, the, the wardrobe changing, to me, there's a pretty simple equation that goes a little something like this. The sun comes out minus a few clothes, plus spring break, equals sex on the brain, okay? Now, my guess is that you have all uh, have seen the research study that came out a few years ago that it doesn't need to necessarily be warm uh, for men to think about sex. There was a study, again, several years ago that said that men think about sex on average every seven seconds, Okay, now, I don't know where that study came from, um, but if that's true, then, then our brains look a little something like this, okay? You see on top, the male brain, there it is, sex, sex, and then you have, I love that, that you can barely even see it, but then on the far left side, there's the listening particle. There's the listening uh, particle, and then you have things like, like ball sports and the lame excuses gland, which are about the same size. Okay, and then, of course, uh, you, have, you have the female brain, uh, where, of course, sex is not nearly as prominent. There's kind of the sex particle there, or in this case, it's, it's the sex gland. But I thought this was actually really brilliant from what this blogger did that it's connected to the listening piece and, of course, the need for commitment. And then there's the, there's the shoe and handbag coordination gland that is about the same size as the ball sports and lame excuses gland in the men. Okay. Um, now, thankfully, you can take that down now. Thankfully, uh, our good friends at Ohio State University uh, did a, a study in 2011 that found that men are not necessarily the horn doggers that the previous research may have asserted. But it does say, on average, that men think about sex more like 19 times a day. So a little more than once an hour. Now that said, that same study found that men also thought about food 18 times a day. So they think about sex more than they think about food, though they're, they're in a similar category. And then I thought this was fascinating. They think, they think about sleep 11 times a day. Sex, food, and sleep comprise then, in general, about 48 unique thoughts of the average 18 to 24-year-old male in a given day. Gents, we are profound, aren't we? <laughs> now, thankfully... And, and I, I do think that this is really good. That same study suggests that our map of women's brains that we just saw would, would also not be that, uh, that accurate. 
as women think about sex, a little less than men think about sleep. Okay, on average, it said that women uh, think about sex eight times a day. But so, so that's, I think, a good thing. You know, that there's a study out there that's saying, yes, women do have a sex drive. Um, it's not as much as men, mind you, but yes, they do, in fact, think about sex. Bottom line is that according to research and certainly according to what I've observed over my 13 years in college ministry, you all think about sex. You all talk about sex, okay? Many of you have sex. And so we felt like in closing a series on discipleship behaviors, the series that we've been doing throughout the, throughout the winter and now into the early spring, where we've been asking questions, what does it look like to grow up into Jesus? Uh, we want to look at what it, this looks like relative to our sexuality and our sex lives. So before we do that, this can be often be a confusing topic for people. It can sometimes be a painful one. We should pray before we get started. Let's do that. And Lord, be our teacher. Uh, I pray that you might teach us something new uh, tonight. Lord, that you would help us get a better understanding of what you would call us to in this and what your heart is uh, for, uh, for sex and for our lives. Uh, so, Lord, open our ears and our minds that we would receive whatever it is that you have in mind for us tonight. Lord, we, do, we need your help, and we know it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, as we get started tonight, I want to begin by making two critiques. The first is I want to critique the church. I want to critique my own tribe. I've been a part of the church for a long time. I grew up in the church. I've been working in a church for the, the last several years. So I want to, in some ways, be critical of my own family before we move on. And, and my critique is this, that around the subject of sex, the church has too often created and perpetuated a culture of shame around this topic. Okay, the traditional view of the church and sex is that it is to be uh, something that is shared only between a man and a woman in a, in a covenant relationship. That covenant relationship is marriage. And anything outside of this is, is a really, really bad thing, is deeply sinful. Somehow the church has, has said that any sin around sex is somehow sexier than any other sin. And I think that's wrong. In particular, I think that, that the church has been particularly harsh on women in this way, in creating this culture of shame, that there, there has been this sense that if you aren't this prim, proper little virgin at the time that you get married, then you are somehow damaged goods. Sometimes it can feel as if there is no grace or forgiveness necessary for you. In short, the church has created an idol in this way, by having sex be something that we are scared of, that we fear, not only in what we do, but often what the church has, has done is said, you know what, don't even think about it. That even the thought of or, or sexual desire outside of marriage is somehow a shameful, bad thing. And in thus, we, it has created an idol. Now, there's two ways to create an idol. The first way that you create an idol is by unnecessarily fearing something. 
And so one, ways, one of the ways that the church has created this idol is by creating a culture of shame and fear and just, and, and just being scared about what, what sex might do if it runs rampant. And at, at this point, I want to stop and make something really clear. That if you are in this room tonight, maybe you're giving the church a second chance. Maybe you have felt shamed by the church because of a sexual past that you have. I want to stand up before you, and on behalf of other Christians and brothers that may have put you in that position, I want, I want you to hear me say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you had to go through that. I'm sorry that there may have been a painful experience in your life that the church may have actually made more painful. I do not believe that that was God's intention for sexual ethics in the church. And I'm sorry that you had to deal with that. I'm sorry that we have created an idol by fearing this too much. And I hope that something can change. Now, lest you think I'm being too hard on my own tribe, on the church, I want to critique our wider culture as well. The other way that you can make an idol is by taking this slice of created reality, in this case, sex, and then demanding a miracle from it. I think that that is the idol that our culture has created in sex. If we could just find the right person to have sex with whenever we want to have sex with them, and if, if we are fit for sex and it's good sex, then boom, everything will be just fine. Now, of course, this isn't necessarily explicitly stated in the culture that we live in, but I believe that it is more or less implicit everywhere. When we think about our culture and we think about what's out there, we think about things like, like how much money do, do, do pharmaceutical companies spend on things like contraception, things like uh, erectile dysfunction drugs. Um, many of you know that my, my brother-in-law is a professional golfer. And so in our house, it's not uncommon for us to, to watch the golf channel a little bit. And by far and away, the most popular ad on the golf channel is for Viagra and Cialis, okay? Cialis has an ad of these, of, of there's two bathtubs like on top of a cliff and they're looking out at a, at a sunset. And so, you know, we're watching a golf tournament or whatever that my brother-in-law is in. And of course, my, my five-year-old then asks, hey, dad, what's Cialis? <laughs> oh, well, um, Carson, uh, Cialis is, uh, it, it's medicine uh, for, for men that uh, need a little pick-me-up. No, that's not right. Um, maybe, <laughs> let's, let's go outside and throw the football, Carson. <laughs> the food and diet industry that creates an anxiety in us that says, are you attractive enough? Are you eating the right food? Are you doing the right workout? Do you realize in this country that is a $50 billion industry? The healthy eating and diet industry, $50 billion. It's a lot of money. 
to make you anxious to say, are you gonna be good enough to find that person that will have sex with you? That you will be somehow be good enough for them. Think about the lyrics that are on the songs on your, your iPhone. The songs that you listen to in many ways that perpetuate this, this idolatry of it's all about your being able to hook up with the right, right person and really have an orgasm when you feel like it. Too often our culture gives us the permission to be highly involved with people without being committed to them. And that is where you don't have to like it, but the the reality is that there is a lot of damage that is done to people's hearts and minds as they engage in sexual relationships and then all of a sudden they change. And it leaves people feeling excluded and rejected. Our culture gives us tons of permission to experiment with this and to spend money on it. They make us anxious about, make sure you do this right. And I don't think that that is necessarily the right way either. So on the one hand, the church has made an idol out of sex by fearing it. And on the other hand, our culture has made an idol out of sex by demanding a miracle from it that you can find meaning and identity in just having a great sex life. What I want to do as we come to our text tonight is is to explore how Scripture might lead us to a third way. It's not about either side of that. It's an invitation, I think, to, to see this a little bit differently. And that's what my hope is tonight, is that you might walk out of here being able to think about sex and sexual ethics that you have in, in your churches and really in your relationships in a little bit of a different way. Um, that goes beyond just a right and wrong mentality, uh, but that helps you understand this in, in, in a little deeper way. So let's see what scripture, uh, how, how scripture might guide us in finding uh, that third way. All right, first, um, let's, let's take a look at the, at the Old Testament. Kind of right in the middle of the Old Testament, there is this, uh, this book called Song of Songs, that is this wonderful poem between uh, two lovers. Uh, let, let me sample this for you, okay? It says uh, this. This is the very beginning of Song and Song. Verse one just says, this is the Song of Songs. And then it says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. I should have a woman read this. It would be a lot better. For your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. (laughs) I like to think that they're writing about me right here. (laughs) Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. (laughs) Does that mean what I think it means? Yes, it does. We rejoice and delight in you, and we praise your love more than wine how right they are to adore you. Okay, this is, friends, this is in the Bible. Okay, this isn't, I found this, this, uh, this novel, Spirit Bound, 
Okay, look at the cover of this. Okay, pretty, pretty hot, pretty saucy, right? It was, it was open, it was open on, uh, on Megan Gale's desk in our office. And I was like, what, you know, what, what's she doing? So that's where you would expect a passage like that. Not in the Bible, right? What I want you to see is that in the right smack dab in the middle of the Bible, in the Bible's longest discussion about sex, there is a celebration of this. There is a celebration of the desire that brings two people close together. Okay, this, this is a good thing. This is something to be celebrated. It's given to us and it's written right there in scripture, in the Old Testament. So before we get to a culture of shame, we need to consider a culture of celebration. Oh, and by the way, I found that book right over there, not on Megan's desk. I just thought I'd embarrass her a little bit. All right, now let's fast forward to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter five. This is one of the most popular teachings that I think has had one of the more formative impacts on our uh, sexual ethics, okay? Hear, Hear these words from the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay? I think that Jesus right here, just so that, you know, um, look, ladies, you're not off the hook. Okay? This, this includes you. This is lust for everyone, even though it's only spoken to men. Okay? But I tell you that whoever uh, looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Okay, obviously very stern words here. That if we were to take this from a very literal hermeneutic. Now, hermeneutic is just a fancy word for how we read and interpret the Bible. If we were to take this very literally, uh, then it means that there should be a lot of people in our churches walking around without eyes and hands. Now, thankfully, this is not the teaching of the church. Thankfully, that, that's not what was, what was being said here. Um, Now, while I do think that part of what Jesus intended in this teaching was to raise the bar in terms of how we think about one another, to raise the bar on less saying, hey, look, this is not good for you and it's not good for others, so don't do it. I think think there's, there's that in play. But here's what I think that this text is more about. I think that this is is saying, um, really to those who might say, who might be hitting their chest going, yeah, I've never had sex. I've, I've never committed adultery. Uh, you know, I've, I have been sexually pure, doggone it. He's saying, oh, no, 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 no. If you've even thought about it, you're included in this too. Far from seeking to shame us, I think what Jesus was trying to do here is say, we are in this together. 
Okay, nobody, even the, the person who might be the most pure among you, they cannot look down on you because at the very least they've thought it. Jesus' intent here is to level the playing field because I believe that one of the primary sexual ethics that's being developed here is to create safety around these sexual ethics. Jesus wants the community to be a safe place for people to exist where there is not constantly this, this threat, to put it in our terms of today, of you having to wander around going, okay, is this person really, are they, are they um, really being nice to me or they, do they just want to have sex with me? That's honestly part of what I believe is happening here is that Jesus is trying to help communities build a healthy sexual ethic and help communities be safe and inclusive for all people, not just the ones who have managed to keep the letter of the law. Okay. Um, then, so we've, I've given you two texts there, and there, there's certainly more that we can say, but the last thing that I want to do in terms of our little explore, our, our exploration of the Bible study component is for you to think about the two most prominent uh, characters, the two most prominent people in the New Testament, at least as I think about it, okay? Jesus and the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote almost the, the second half of the Bible. These are two men who, uh, as tradition tells us and, and what Scripture bears witness to, were single and celibate for their entire lives and their entire lives in ministry. Okay, now, I think it's important that we allow the lives of these characters to witness to us. For those of you that have been in a core group or been in some sort of Bible study, you know that that's one of the ways that we read scripture, right? Is to say, how did these people actually live? How did they live this out? Paul and Jesus, two people that talked about the kingdom of God and the love of God, single and celibate. And what I want us to take from their witness is that there is this possibility to know deep love and intimacy as someone who is single and celibate. In the culture that we live in that says you are entitled to a sex life, we see two heroes of the faith our Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul that remains single and celibate. And we need to remember that when it comes to covenant love, to being included and accepted, these are two powerful examples where sex has no part of that. And I think it's fair that we would be inspired by their lives and by their ministry. So what's going on here? How would I, how would I summarize this? That when we look at scripture, the, the, the big story of scripture, I don't, I don't want you guys to think I'm merely proof texting here. That the story of scripture is that God promises this one guy, this one family, Abraham, that they are part of the kingdom of God. That they are going to be best, blessed to be a blessing. Then that turns in uh, to, to this entire race of people, the Hebrews. Well, then Jesus comes along and that really translates to the whole world. That what you see throughout scripture is a story of more and more people being included in the kingdom of God. That when you think about what is the kingdom of God all about, what is Jesus all about, part of the heart of God is that you feel included. That you experience what it means to be accepted and to be accepted and loved by God. 
The kingdom is a kingdom of inclusion, yet there is this teaching that we come to here on sexual ethics that seems to be very exclusive. Now, go with me here. This is, a, this is an important point that I want you to try and get tonight. That part of what we bear witness to as sexual beings and as sexual beings who are trying to follow Jesus is that we participate in this kingdom of inclusion with our sex lives. That the ethic that scripture build is, is that you are going to intimately include one person in your life in a profound and exciting way in this sexual union. And that is a beautiful, wonderful, great thing. Now, and this could, be, this could, could bring up some stuff for some of you in the room, uh, but I think it's necessary to, to share this to illustrate the point. For those of you that have ever been in a sexual relationship where your partner start, starts sleeping with somebody else, did you feel included in that moment? Maybe you know somebody who was in that moment when somebody they were sleeping with starts sleeping with somebody else. No, in that moment, they feel excluded. They feel rejected. And thus, there's a message that's being sent that is certainly contrary to the kingdom of God, not to mention the pain and confusion that would be associated with that. You see, part of what we do with our sexuality is participate in this including kingdom. But Jesus warns us and says, I want you to behave in a way that is not going to make others feel excluded. And the problem with casual sex where we have multiple partners is that somewhere along the line, someone is going to feel excluded. When you decide to start sleeping with somebody else or when somebody else stops sleeping with you to go sleep with somebody else painful, confusing. That's not the message of the kingdom that Jesus is trying to send you. In summary, where we're at is we want to, our third way that I was inviting us to invites us to an ethic that says we want to celebrate sex without centering on it. We want to, and this is something that I, that I got from a, a mentor of mine. Uh, many of you know Mike Gaffney. That he says, celebrating sex without centering on it. Celebrate, not shame, sex without centering on it. That is not demanding miracles from it. Not expecting who you're having sex to give you your identity and meaning. We celebrate sex without centering on it. I believe that the sexual desire that we have can lead us to some really great things. It can lead you to discover another person. It compels us toward relationship, and that's a really good thing. Uh, So we need to embrace that, but we also need to not center on it. Let me tell you a story. Um, when I was in college, towards, uh, towards the, the end of my time here at UW, I got into a relationship with uh, a woman that it was just wonderful. 
um, who I adored in so many ways. And, and uh, we would come to the inn together. We would go to church together. Our faith was something that was very serious to us, that we were both taking very seriously, excited about growing in that way. Um, and in our relationship, uh, we, we had a very, very physical relationship. Um, we were into each other. And in those moments, it, it felt great. And somehow it was really easy to, to justify going to the places that we would go when I was convinced that I was, you know, falling in love with this person. Well, as, as that trend kind of continued and would escalate in our relationship and we would try to put the brakes on it and we, and we couldn't, uh, what ended up happening was, was this, this woman who, again, to this day, I think that she was just a remarkable woman. But she became this, this, um, this symbol of the ways that I was failing that I couldn't discipline myself. And I'm not putting the onus on her one bit. Too often the church has said, well, you know, you know she shouldn't tempt you or you know, she should have this discipline. No, 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 I'm gonna, I wanna own this one. Okay, but the bottom line was a relationship, a good relationship fell apart because we could somehow not find a way to discipline ourselves in our sexual relationship and, we, and thus, we couldn't find a way to encourage each other in our faith, which we, at that point, would have said was the most important thing in our lives. I really enjoyed that relationship. It was hard to let it go. But ultimately, I was the one that broke up with her because she became the symbol of my failure. And in my immaturity, I had to bounce from it. I also want to tell you a story of... I of dating my now wife. That as we started dating, again, we took this very seriously and in the process found a way to to be more disciplined in the way that we were expressing our affection to each other. And at times it was profoundly frustrating. There were times that I felt uh, I felt hurt and rejected. Um, no doubt if she were here, there were times that she would have said that she would have felt the tension and felt confused within that. But we were able to not have sex until we got married. And I only share that to say this, that as someone that did have a sexual past, that, there, that I was able to get into a relationship where that wasn't the case. I simply want you to know that it's possible. And thankfully, my, me and my now wife were able to encourage each other in the ways that we wanted to encourage each other and find discipline in the places where we needed discipline. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. We included each other. And in so doing, we make it safe for everyone else. Celebrate sex without centering on it. Two things that I want to leave you with um, that I hope encourage you in your journey to find the third way. Two really quick things. The first is this. I want you to feel the love, but do so in a non-sexual way. Feel the love non-sexually. 
Here's an example for you. Uh, well, first of all, I think that there are people in your lives that are trying to, to love you and share encouragement with you, share how great you are with you, that you have a hard time connecting with. Uh, the example I want to give is this. Maybe, uh, maybe you are one of those teenagers that went through a season of just hating your parents. You were convinced that they were there to wreck your life. Um, and that now that you're growing up a little bit, you can look back and go, wow, my folks actually weren't trying to make things miserable. They were loving me. And I just couldn't quite see it. So often I feel like if sex is the priority or if sex is most prominent, whether you chose that or not, it's the only thing that you can see. And you can't see how you are being loved otherwise. You're not able to feel the love that other people have for you in non-sexual ways otherwise. I want you to be able to feel the love, to feel the way that people are embracing you and reaching out to you and affirming you in ways that are non-sexual. Feel the love. The second is this, share the love, but do so in a non-sexual way. Uh, I've done 67 weddings over the last six uh, years or so. And uh, as part of doing weddings, I often get to meet with couples and we do, we do premarital together. And inevitably, I will ask them about their, uh, about their sex life. And if they are having sex, I will challenge them to stop. And the thing that I, always, that I always encourage them with is that this is an opportunity, and think about this really quick, okay? That I, as much as you hear about, uh, the, the, uh, about marriage being the primary model of how we on earth can experience the covenant love of God, I actually think it's engagement that we experience that most. Why? Because in engagement, you're committed, you're in love with somebody, you're not going anywhere, you're in for the long haul, but the relationship is not yet fully consummated. That's the way that we live our lives as people who follow God. We're on board, we're in, we're not going anywhere, but until we see him face to face, until we see the Lord face to face, the relationship is not yet fully consummated. There's a huge opportunity in engagement. And in engagement, when I meet with these couples, the thing that I try to share with them is find other ways to show your affection, to express your love and adoration for this other person. Because honestly, especially with somebody that you love and you know that you love, that you're going to get married to, sex is kind of the easy way out. It's kind of an easy way to do it. Now, it's a beautiful way. It's a wonderful way. It's a fun way. But it's not the only way. And the opportunity that we have when we are going to share the love is expand your vocabulary of love and how you love uh, the brothers and sisters around you. More than Jesus is concerned about the nuclear family, about, about a husband and wife, he's more concerned about making us the family of God that is brothers and sisters. We need to find out, figure out ways that we are going to share the love with each other in non-sexual ways. And I believe in a sexually charged culture, that's harder and harder to do, but you can do it. Feel the love and share the love. Celebrate sex without centering on it. God wants you to experience that there is so much more to this idea of covenant love than sex. God wants you to know that you are included 
If you have that sexual past that you are ashamed of tonight, I'm here to tell you, you are included. And don't let anybody tell you different. And if you are one that is seeking to find that inclusion by going out and having sex, I want to invite you to know that you are included in this place tonight, that you are included in the kingdom of God. God's heart is to include you and not exclude you. And that is why we have this table. This is a table of inclusion. It invites us to know that we are part of God's kingdom family. For as our Lord reclined with a group of friends on the the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Take and eat. Each of you, all of you, you're included. And do so to remember me. And in the same way after after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the love of God, your hope in that love that includes you and every single person around you and every single person you live with until God, until Jesus comes again. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you include us. Uh, Lord, would you guide our, our lives? Would you guide our sex lives? Would you help us to think differently? Um, would you help us to transcend, to be, to be freed from shame? And would you help us to not simply do what everyone else is doing? Lord, thank you that you have included us, that you have forgiven, redeemed, and saved us. May we taste that you are good as we come to this table tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.